Welcome to Bone, Stone, and Obsidian. My name's Wayne. And I'm Robert. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. You may have noticed that Robert and I are actually being very, very proactive about making sure our, our, our podcasts come out uh, on time-ish and a monthly schedule. Today, I'm kind of jumping in my seat here. I, I literally had just gotten home. I'm like forcing my, my daughter to bed. It's delayed, but I'm, I'm bouncing up and down a little in my seat. Um, so I got this non-squeaky chair today um, because we have a very, very special guest. And I'm going to let Robert introduce him. Yeah, so we we've been very fortunate. Well, we've had some uh, some great guests. Um, we've we we've gotten you know really the founders of of Dark Sun. Uh, we had Troy or we had sorry we had Tim on Tim Brown on, and now we are very very excited to have Troy Denning on. Uh, welcome, Troy Denning. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Robert and I got our 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 squealing like little girls. Um, at, you know, really excited, done before the the the, uh, the recording started. So <laughs> we uh, we're gonna try to be professionals about this. But uh, <laughs> but honestly, uh, Troy, is that it is a huge honor, it's a huge pleasure to have you on the show. And um, by the number of questions that our our listeners had, which we'll go through later on, we're very very happy to have you on. Just to start, introduce yourself. Tell everybody out there who may not have been playing Dark Sun as long as Robert and I have, who you are and what do you do. Well, most people know me as a writer, I'm sure as a writer of um, tie-in novels. I'm probably best known for the Star Wars tie-in novels that I've done. I've written 12 of those for the what's now the Legends line. But I got my start writing Forgotten Realms uh, when we wrote Waterdeep. I wrote that under a pseudonym, Richard Owenson, hmm. way back in, I don't know, early 80s. And that was when they wanted to convert Forgotten Realms from first edition to second edition, and they decided to have a big um, story to mm-hmm. explain why the world was changing. And right, so that was the Avatar trilogy, and mm-hmm. I was selected after... I was given the chance to audition to write one of the books in the Avatar trilogy, and I competed against, I guess, 20 other people to write an outline and a sample chapter. And it was all done blind, so nobody knew who you were, and I just sent that in, and, and I was one of the lucky ones picked. <laughs> nice. So looking on, you know, looking at your bibliography, it is, uh, it is, it's quite amazing. How did you really start working at TSR? That's kind of just one of those lucky long stories that that uh, you know you you turn down a certain corner in life and open a certain door and you don't expect anything to really come of it, but all of a sudden it changes your life. And in my case, it was, gosh, I was, it was probably 1980 or 79 when I was, I played football in college at Beloit College um, as a Division three school. So and it wasn't like going pro or anything, but I was playing Division three ball. Mm-hmm. And we'd just come back from uh, long road trip. We'd been out in Grinnell, Iowa, and I went to school in Beloit, Wisconsin. So we'd been on the bus for four or five hours, and and I had a concussion, and I was all beat up, and, you know, half of my fingers were out of their sockets. (laughs) Wow. Came came into the dorm one night, you know, on the way back, and it was probably 11 or 12 at night. I was walking down the dorm to my room, limping down the the hallway, and uh, some of my roommates where my dorm mates were sitting in there in uh, one of their rooms on the floor with pencils and papers and this funny-looking dice playing this game. And I just stopped to say hello and 
started listening to them and they were kind of telling this story about dragons and wizards and stuff and and so I got interested and sat down and and uh, started to listen to what they were doing and then pretty soon before you knew it I was rolling up a character and next morning about seven o'clock in the morning my my new character Vankatar finally slayed the blue dragon <laughs> nice <laughs> and so it turned out that um, one of the uh, people that I was playing the game with was a guy named Bruce Nesmith uh-huh. who went to work for TSR as he was a math major and a, and a big computer guy and he went to work for TSR as uh, developing the, what they were going to do with their first computer games now keep in mind this is in the day of the Apple II so he was <laughs> designing games that that took you know really a long time it would take five minutes to draw a screen <laughs> right, and the screen was really simple. Uh, so, but but he went to work at TSR, and and he was like a year ahead of me. And when I graduated, he let me know that, and we we kept playing. Bruce and I kept playing um, Dungeons and Dragons, and the, and a variation of fantasy RPG that he invented of his own. We'd played that for I don't know the next year or two, and um, he'd gone to work for TSR at the computer you know, establishing their computer gaming department. Mm-hmm. And he let me know that they were looking for editors as I, about the time I graduated. So I applied and was lucky enough to get accepted uh, as an editor for the gaming system at TSR. Boy, that was 19, yeah, it would have been about 1981, the fall of 81. All right. So if that was 81, I'm looking at some of the other things you've done, and it looks like there's some, like, pace setter, Mayfair, like the City State of the Invincible Overlord, I didn't know, I had no idea you worked on that. Well, yeah, that was, um, basically, I was just part of the acquisition of it. You know, it was published by, was it Judges Guild? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was published by Judges Guild originally. Mm-hmm. And um, I had worked it for, I don't know, by then I'd probably been in the gaming business four or five years, and I was the manager of the, their design and, per, and editing department at Mayfair. And uh, Darwin Bromley, who owned Mayfair, along with his brothers, came up with the opportunity to buy it. And yeah, we said, great, we'll do that. And then we kind of, I kind of supervised and helped rewrite the City State of the Overlord, along with, I think it was Deborah Christian, who was a freelancer who did the, most of the work on that. You know, we, we kind of revised it and brought it out in a new edition and added a bunch of cool stuff to make it more exciting and, and rejuvenate it. Mm-hmm. How did you, so you said, so you said you started at TSR kind of doing editing and stuff. How did you end up uh, writing novels? Well, I had, I was an editor for about a year. Then I became the manager of the design department, spent about a year doing that. And then I left after TSR had a bunch of layoffs and I was mm-hmm. kind of upset with them for that. Um, <laughs> So I left and helped a bunch of people found Pace Setter. Oh, okay. And that lasted a couple of years. And then I went to work for Mayfair. Okay. And then finally <laughs> decided I wanted to go back to work at TSR <laughs> and uh, was, was rehired by Jim Ward. Okay. I went to work um, as a designer there. Well, I, well, I was doing, after I'd got, went, gone to work at Pace Setter or at Mayfair, I left Mayfair after about a year. It just, it was a long commute from where I lived and I didn't want to move to Chicago. So I started freelancing, and that was during that period that I started to work on the Star Wars pick-a-path games and stuff. And 
the manager of the book department was somebody I'd met during my first stint at TSR, and I was good friends with her husband, um, and her name was Mary Kirchhoff. And mm -hmm. she knew that I was interested in writing fiction. Mm -hmm. And so she, and she knew, you know, I'd been an editor and a designer, and she asked me if I wanted to audition for the, the job. And mm -hmm. I said, sure. And basically she said, we're going to be doing um, this project where we convert Forgotten Realms from first edition rules to second edition rules. We want to have a story basis for, for that conversion, for the world changing. Mm -hmm. And we're going to call it, you know, the Avatar Trilogy. And we're going to have three different writers write the books because we don't have time to have one writer write all three books. Mm -hmm. And so we'd like to know if you want to audition for one of those books. And I s said, sure, and, and wrote up an outline, about a 20-page outline and uh, 20 pages of first chapter. And then you took all your name, everybody took their name off of it, and you submitted it to the editor so they wouldn't know who had written it, so it was a blind audition. Nice. And there were about 20 people who they asked to audition. Uh-huh. And um, most of them were outside writers, you know, just people who had written to TSR about writing novels because they'd already put out the Dark Walker and Moonshade books and, mm -hmm. uh, Forgot and the Dragonlance books. Mm -hmm. So they had a small book department going. And I was one of the three people who was picked to write the Avatar trilogy. Nice. So you said that you had uh, that you used a pseudonym to write that one. Is that right? Yeah, the fr because they didn't want to. They didn't want the all three books placed at different places on the, the store and the bookshelves. Uh huh. So they said we want to, uh -huh. you know, have the pseudonym written so that all the books end up being placed together. Uh huh. And the name was Richard Allwins and All in One was, you know, it's just kind of a taken off. So they're all all three books had the same same name on it. Uh, yeah, how did you feel exactly. about that? Um. You know, it was my first book, and what they were doing made sense to me. Uh -huh. um, I just wanted to be sure that, you know, I would be able to get the credit someplace in, inside the book so that I could take it to another publisher and say, look, I wrote this. Um, right, right. right. And um, <laughs> we had, the lawyer was giving me a hard time. I almost didn't write the book because he was, like, saying, no, you can't have the right to put your name in it anywhere. Hmm. And and I was like, well, okay, then I'm not going to write the book. <laughs> you know, by that time, they were pressed for time, so we came to a compromise. Um, what, what, was the co what was the compromise? Oh, just that I had the right to do it. Oh, okay. I to, but by the time the book was actually coming out and we got to the point where, you know, I had to make the decision about whether I was going to put my name inside it, I had already auditioned for the next book in line, which was for the Empire's Trilogy. Uh -huh. um, and that was my second book was Dragon Wall, which was also a TSR book. And my name was going to go on that one. They they abandoned the practice of doing the pseudonyms. Mm -hmm. So it became kind of a moot point. Cool. So you said that and then you... I Then I had to audition for the third book I wrote, Part <laughs> C. I had to audition for that one too, you know. Huh. And it was at this point, it was getting a little ridiculous because um, Waterdeep, my first one, was a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Uh -huh. And pretty much I could take that book to any publisher in the country and say, hey, give me a contract, and they would. Uh-huh. Right. For, yeah. Interesting. So you said before that you kind of did some work for West End Games on on Star Wars stuff. Um, yeah. While I was freelancing. Uh huh. Did you meet uh, Bill Slavitek at that time? I can't remember if I met Bill before he came to TSR, or if I met him in in New York. But the way I came to do that work was, remember when I talked about walking in and playing Dungeons and Dragons in my college dorm? Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, one of the guys I was playing Dungeons and Dragons with was a guy named Curtis Smith, who went on to work at TSR, and he developed as he was the editor on the original Ravenloft module. Okay. And you know that Tracy Hickman wrote, and he was, he was a hell of an editor, very creative and and stuff. And he had gone out and moved to West End to become their creative director. And when he was doing that, and I was freelancing, he knew I liked Star Wars, so. He called me up and said, hey, you want to write some Star Wars stuff? And so I ended up writing four kind of choose-your-own-adventure books for him and, and the Galaxy Guide 4, which was a list of the alien species. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Looks like you got scoundrels yeah, left. So, <laughs> yeah. So, but I, so I may well have met Bill, but I don't remember meeting him there. My first memory of really meeting him was when he came to work at TSR. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So how did you go from, I mean, you wrote, it looks like you wrote, you know, the City State of Invincible Overlord, some Star Wars stuff. Looks like you had credits on uh, Legends and Lore. And then once you started writing books, like what, what made you kind of be like, I, I just want to write novels instead of the game stuff? Well, um, those first books, TSR paid pretty poorly for the, you know, originally for those first books. And it, um, the advances weren't enough to live on. So it was just kind of like you did it because you loved it and you got a little bit of extra cash. And then, you know, you didn't really realize that you were going to make enough to live on until the royalty started to come in. Mm-hmm. And you realize, oh, you know, I could make a living doing this. But that takes quite a while. Mm-hmm. So I had been doing it for about two or three years. And Jim Ward asked me to come back to TSR as a designer. And so that's when I came back to to work as a designer and I was still writing, I think I wrote part C and Dragon Wall on the side while I was working there as a designer. Okay. So it was kind of, you know, you just kind of ease your way into it. Mm-hmm. Um, even in those days, I mean, the one thing I would never tell a writer to do, a young writer, is I would never tell them to quit their day job and go become a writer, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. live off of what they're making as a, as a fiction writer. It's just, even if you get one or two books that sell enough to, to really live on, the next one is um, you, you don't know that it's going to sell well enough. It's a very, very mm-hmm. fickle job. And so you don't really want to become a fiction writer full time until you have so much money in the bank mm-hmm. that yeah. you don't need it. You don't need to, you know, you, you'll be okay for a year or two mm-hmm. if, if you don't um, sell another book or, or get enough or it doesn't sell enough copies to, for you to make a living off. Um, gotcha. Yeah. That's good uh, advice. So I was basically, even at that time, it's more true to, that's more true today than it was then, but mm-hmm. it was still true at that, at that time too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was working as a designer and just kind of writing in the evenings. That's, so, that's kind of what led me into dark sun. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's dive right into that. Tell, tell us about that. How did, how did that all start for you? And, what did you bring? Well, I'd been I'd been gone back to work at TSR as a designer, and we had I can't remember how long I'd been there a month or it might have been a month or it might have been six months, but I had gone back to work and we were having a designers meeting where we were talking about what TSR wanted to do in the future, and it was at this time they were pretty darn successful. They'd kind of gotten over the the layoff stage and and. Um, Lorraine Williams had come in and kind of put them on an even business footing. And so we were looking at new avenues because everything that they had done was working pretty well, but you could only put out so many Forgotten Realms modules and so many, you know, Dragonlance modules. 
uh, before you just were competing with yourself. So they were looking at expanding new ideas for expanding worlds. Sure. And we had a design meeting one day where I think it was 10 or 12 of us got together in a conference room and we were talking about what the next world would be and where we should go from where we were at. And people just kind of started brainstorming. And one of the, the people said was, we have to have a reason for poor people to wear so little clothing, you know, because the artists, you couldn't convince them to stop painting girls in chainmail bikinis and, you know, and people that were just, you know, completely underdressed for medieval warfare. Um, <laughs> so they said, let's have invent a world where that makes sense. And at the time they were doing redoing the second edition rules and, and they knew psionics were going to be big. So they said, let's also do a world where psionics make sense. Mm -hmm. And we came up with a whole bunch of list of things like that. Every, you know, the whole department contributed to this list of things that we were going to try to achieve. Mm -hmm. And after the, after that meeting, Jim Ward talked to Tim Brown and I about, do you guys want to kind of take the lead on this world and get it going? Mm -hmm. And we agreed that we would, that that would be a good idea. And you know, that was something we were interested in. And so we started, uh, do a little bit of work, you know, conceptualization on that. And about that time, Mary Kirchhoff, who again was the, the senior, the managing editor of the book department, came in and said, you know, I'd like to be involved in conceptualizing this too for the books. And we said, sure, yeah, that'll work. And we had a, a really long lead time. This this was one of those ideal situations that you just don't get in the business world very often. Mm -hmm. But they just said, you know, take your time, do it as you know, take as much time as you want to do it. So basically, Tim and Mary and I would go to lunch every day, or not every day, once a week for about a year. And we would just talk about what, you know, what we were going to do with the world, you know, and toss out ideas and talk about, well, all right, we want to have it make sense that everybody's wearing chainmail bikinis. What would make sense for that? You know, and we said, well, it's really hot. There's not much metal. And, you know, we just started kind of, coming up with ideas to make the criteria that we, that the design department had developed mm -hmm. in that meeting, you know, we came up with ideas to make that make sense. And so during that year of conceptualizing, we, you know, we talked about not having much metal, which meant, okay, well, we're not even going to have chain mail bikinis. The bikinis are going to be made out of leather or scales <laughs> or something else. Right. Um, you know, and, and this kind of went along with developing these ideas one of the things early on we said was, well, we won't have, you know, it's not, we don't want to do a standard fantasy world. We want to make it something really different. So we're not going to have any elves and we're not going to have any halflings and we're not going to have any dragons. We're not going to have any of that stuff. It's all going to be all new races. Yeah. And um, the marketing department somehow got wind of that <laughs> and said, no, no, you can't do that. Dragons sell, elves sell, you know, you, you can't do it without it. You know, you got to have dwarves. <laughs> and and so we said, okay, well, all right, how do we do that and still stay true to this idea of a really different world? And that's when we came up with the idea of twisting everything mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, the elves wouldn't be the noble elves. They'd be these kind of traveler-type elves that were just out to rip you off all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, halflings wouldn't be these cute little, cute little guys that, you know, that were always there to you know for a joke or stuff they would be like cannibals right <laughs> and, yeah and so so we took everything you know all of the standard things and we kind of took the core of what it was in the fantasy world and just gave it a twist 
And then um, the biggest twist, of course, was, well, okay, dragons. What do we do with dragons? And then we, that's when we decided, well, okay, what if you become a dragon? You know, you ascend to become a dragon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the dragons are really these, these kind of beings that have been metamorphosed, metamorphosed into something else entirely from being mm-hmm. um, a human or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's how we kind of came up with our conception of the what, dragons and the dragon kings. And Nice. Was there anything that, you know, that you guys kind of started working on aside from the really drastic change to the races? Um, was there anything that kind of, anything else that didn't make it? Probably, but, but I can't remember at this point, you know, that was <laughs> nothing that, was that you really loved that you were really annoyed that didn't make it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't think that there was anything that, that annoyed me so much that I still remember it. Sure, sure. You know, I think that pretty much we had the freedom to do what we wanted to to design the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when the marketing department came in, this was, you know, I should say that companies are often either driven by marketing or by R&D. Yeah. And usually it's driven by mar- by marketing, and that's been true in the game world more often than not. Mm-hmm. But this was one of those really, really rare um, circumstances when the R&D department was driving it. And it was because at the time, nobody was sure we were going to do this world. You know, we were just coming up with a proposal. Mm-hmm. And um, so we felt free to just do anything we wanted to with the proposal. And every once in a while, marketing would pop in with their input, you know, and we'd think about it. And, um, and then, you know, we would either accept their input or not. Generally, what they said made sense. And so that's why we, you know, kind of incorporated it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, did that. It was definitely R&D driven. So that was, uh, I think that was one of the big keys to its success. You know, that's why it didn't become another cookie cutter middle European fantasy world. How long of a development time did you guys have to, to develop this and to, to work on it and basically until finally said, okay, we got to put this out into print. Well, we worked on the conceptualization for a year. So we met, you know, once a week for a year and took notes and, kind of shaped the world up that way and that again that's really unusual you know that would normally that would never happen that would be like three months would be what they would allow for a in-house developed world so if if the the setting and the book first book i think came out in 91 then were you you were doing this in 1989 then and then like 90 was time to write kind of thing or what yeah uh, I'm trying, I, I don't remember the dates as well as sure. you do, probably, but after I came back to TSR, you know, I'd been there for a few months before we started doing this. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that sounds about right. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, you said that kind of Tim more or less handled the, the game design stuff. When you were writing the original campaign setting book, did you already kind of have an idea of where the prison pentad was going to go? Or was that sort of all after you guys wrote the, the campaign? No, you're, actually, I, I guess I'm going to jump back a little bit because mm-hmm. one of the most interesting things is we're kind of skipping over. And that was at, at a certain point, you know, after we'd been doing it maybe 10 months, we kind of said, well, all right, we're getting ready to present this and we're getting ready to show it to the executives and we know we're going to have to sell it to them. And of course, the way you sell stuff is with art, you know, to a bunch of executives who are 
you know, their marketing executives and bankers and accountants and, and stuff. Okay. And what they know about actually playing a game has nothing to do with dice and pencils and papers. <laughs> it's, it's all art. Yeah. So we said, well, we have to have some art to, to really sell this. So we're going to have to get an artist involved. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we just walked up to the, you know, this is one of the wonderful things about TSR at that time. It was all so compact mm-hmm. that we could literally just walk upstairs and go for a tour in the um, artist studio. Um, they were all in a big bullpen working together with loud music all the time. And, and uh, you know, they all had their easels just facing each other with their art hung up behind them. And um, we knew all the guys because, you know, we went to parties with them every weekend and, you know, we were all friends. So we walked up and Tim and I and Mary just started kind of walking around and gabbing a little bit and looking at the art hanging behind their their easels and, and trying to decide who we wanted to ask to come into the group and help us by drawing a bunch of art for this thing. And we got to Brahms' piece and, you know, that famous piece of Neva with the green, the emerald green helmet on? Yep. She's holding the tricol kind of across her yeah. um, waist. Well, he had that at that time, hanging up behind his easel. He'd just done it for fun. And without knowing anything about Dark Center or what we were doing, he had no idea what we were engaged in. He'd just done it, and, you know, he had it hanging up. And we walked up, and we had by that time, we had developed three characters. We developed um, Rikus, Aegis, and Sidira, and we knew that they were going to have a love triangle. Uh-huh. And when we saw Neva, it was like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> there's another character we have to put in. And it was just, it was just like instantly we knew this is the guy who's got to be the Dark Sun artist. Nice. And, you know, not only does he have to be the Dark Sun artist, we have to put that character into the series. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Brom, you know, when, once we saw that, he immediately became a very key member of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we, we told him what we were doing and asked him if he'd like to participate. And he said, oh, yeah. So he just you know, we kind of told him where we were coming from and talked with him. And, and he just started um, drawing pieces of black and white art. And then we would kind of find a way to fit them into the, into the world, into the story. Nice. And so that's, and then, you know, after, I don't know what that, that process probably lasted a couple of months. And then once we had enough art that, you know, we were sure was going to blow them away, we were ready to make the presentation. Mm-hmm. And so we called called a big meeting with the executives and Lorraine and, and who was you know the CEO and, mm-hmm. and um, said all right this is what we want to do and we showed it to them and kind of explained the theoretical basis of it being a really tough world a world that's so tough that normal characters can't survive in it <laughs> yeah and their eyes kind of glazed over at that part but when they saw the art they were like oh yeah this makes sense let's do this. <laughs> um, you know? nice. And so that we got the go ahead to do it based on the art at that point. Awesome. So did you, at that point, you just started kind of writing, uh, you know, the the book and the and the. <laughs> I, I wish I wish that at that point we just st- sat down and started writing. Um, <laughs> nope. The exec said, "Oh yeah, sure, you can do this. It sounds like it'll you'll have fun with it." Uh-huh. But they didn't really have any idea of how successful it would be. Mm-hmm. And he said, but first, because by that time, Tim and I were kind of lead designers of the designers that, that they knew they wanted to have do certain things. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to do a revamp of the D&D box and set it up so that new players could get into it easier. Sure. 
And so they said, you can do that. You can do Dark Sun right after you do this D&D box. <laughs> yeah, yeah, looking at that, uh, the new easy-to-master Dungeons & Dragons game from 1991, which was like the black box, as some people know it. Yeah, as yeah designer, exactly. As Tim Brown so, and Troy Denning, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we had to do that before we could do Dark Sun. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and Lorraine, Lorraine's famous line was, you know, we'd like this done in, I think she said, two months. And uh-huh. and we're like, but when will we write Dark Sun? And she said, well, can't you do them both? <laughs> and it was like, oh no, you can't, because you know you were just you were talking about immense amount of work. Yeah. <laughs> Even though we were we weren't designing a new game for the D and D box, but we were, you know, taking it apart and putting it back together in a new way. Mm-hmm. I can't remember when. I think I came up with the with the idea of presenting it like SRA cards. Like um, what? You know. Like SRA, SRA cards. You may not even know what they are. Nope, I don't know what that is. <laughs> okay. Well, I when I was in hearing about this, but no, yeah. Yeah, when I was in um, grade school, they had these reading module programs where, to encourage people to read, you'd go and you'd get this little card that was like four pages of cardstock, and you'd read the story and answer some questions on it. Mm-hmm. And it was really a pretty effective way of teaching people about new, a lot of stuff. So I was thinking about how, what's the best way to teach people how to play Dungeons and Dragons in small bite-sized bits. Okay. And so I proposed doing this SRA card thing. And um, at the time, I had, for some reason, I'd been doing some research on how people learn, mm-hmm. and it made sense based on that. So so we had to design this thing, and uh, so we had to design the new easy-to-learn Dungeons and Dragons box set before we could design Dark Sun. Uh-huh. And then we got the got that done in pretty pretty good time mm-hmm. and uh then we were able to start on writing the, the dark sun box okay and and that's when we kind of divided it up with tim handling all the rules mechanics because he's more into that i'm you know i'm much more interested in the world building and in the story mm-hmm. and he was much more interested in the mechanics and had a little bit firmer grasp on how to work psionics into the system and stuff so he kind of, you know, I started writing up the, the Wanderer's Journal, and, mm-hmm. and um, he started writing up the, the rule book. And, you know, we were play testing at that point. We were play testing it probably once a week or twice a week. Nice. Do you and, have any you know, uh, any recollections of, of any of those play tests? Any, any interesting anecdotes from them? Oh, yeah. The, the most <laughs> interesting anecdote was, was that we had some of the best role-playing gamers in the world playing this game. Uh-huh. And none of them could get a first character, a first level character, to live more than a week, more than one session. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody died in the first session, uh-huh. and so that was when we decided we had to um, start characters at third level. Nice. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I just that was just a practical realization of of realizing what kind of a tough world we'd made, <laughs> and how what a really truly deadly world it was. Um, well, I from, what, uh, from myself, I I completely appreciate that. <laughs> that yeah. Is that what also kind of uh, led to characters having stats over eighteen? Yeah, I don't remember that part. Um, okay. Characters having stats that were over eighteen. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the yeah. things with Dark Sun was you you could roll you rolled five d four to start. That was the general yeah. starting forty four plus four maybe it was, but anyways. Yeah. So yeah, so so you know, and then half giants had like plus four to strength, so it ended up being like yeah, 
you know, many characters had stats over 18 to start with. Yeah, um, that was actually part of the the original design conception. Remember, I told you about the okay the meeting that we had with all the designers. Sure, sure. One of the things that everybody was knew that players wanted to do was have super high stat characters. Uh huh. And so that was one of the things that we were kind of like trying to develop into the game from the start. Okay. Oh, interesting. So yeah, so that was one of the original goals. And I think that that's one of the reasons that, you know, just because everything got so um, high powered when you did that, that yeah. you had to start the characters at, at higher level. Mm-hmm. Nice. <laughs> interesting. So one of the things that you mentioned was that you sounded like had a bigger hand in writing the Wanderer's Journal. And one of the things that I love most about Dark Sun from the original box set was, was the mystery. You know, you had kind of this unreliable narrator in The Wanderer. Can you tell us anything about The Wanderer, maybe that didn't make it into the books, or maybe like that you had ideas that never kind of came to fruition? Anything like that? Um, you know, I'm sure I did have ideas that never came to fruition. But to tell you the truth, I, I, um, I don't remember writing it well enough to help you out with that. Mm-hmm. To, to, what was, do, do you remember the onus of you actually writing it in, in that sense? Obviously, I, I haven't read a lot of like first edition. I've read some of the second edition uh, other settings, but you know, other settings are very factual and there's this and that. But like Robert said, it's a first person view. It's a, you know, unreliable narrator. Was there a particular reason why you wrote it in that particular sense? I wish I could remember. <laughs> I, I think, I don't think that there was any deep design reason for doing it. Um, other than we knew that we wanted to take a different approach. Mm-hmm. And so I just, um, of course I was writing a lot of fiction by that point. And I was getting, you know, I was keenly aware of of how a, a narrator impacts um, the story, and so I think I just kind of incorporated the idea of an, of an unreliable narrator into the Wanderer's Journal, just hmm. kind of spontaneously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't recall that there was any conscious design decision about doing it that way. Cool. Oh, very nice. So let's go ahead and uh, move on to the Prism Pentad themselves. What, you know, did you guys have from the beginning the idea that it was going to be five books? Uh, I would imagine you did since it takes some, you know, you know, do marketing and all that stuff. But what was, what was, uh, yeah, I think, about that about? I think um, during that initial year, we developed the characters and, you know, Mary was kind of in charge of developing that that storyline, you know, and not the storyline, but the the program. I want to, I guess, I want to say, you know, deciding that we were going to do five five books, and mm-hmm. and that we were, you know, we developed all the three characters originally. We developed Rikus, Aegis, and Sadira from the start, and Tithian we also developed during that period. And I think that that during that period we decided we wanted to do more than a than a a trilogy that you know for launching this world because it was going to be such a strange world that we wanted to do five books to, to start it out initially. So those are the decisions we made during that initial year of conceptualizing. And then, as I said, we added Neva to the story once we brought Grom in and saw his mm-hmm. beautiful painting of her. And I think that's, we, I think we kind of developed a, a handful of plot points, you know, basically what was going to happen in the first book. There was going to be the slave revolt. In the second book, we were going to focus on Rikus, the third book on Sadira, the fourth mm-hmm. book on Aegis, and then the fifth book, bring them all back together to deal with the dragon. 
So that was kind of um, that's kind of the extent of what we developed during the conceptualizing year. Mm-hmm. What were some of the inspirations, uh, if you can recall, of uh, you know just why you wrote um, of of the things that you included, the details, um, the books or anything? Yeah, well, the I think one of the biggest inspirations was were the Conan movies, you know, mm-hmm. that they weren't really quite Dark Sun, but they definitely had a Dark Sun vibe about them. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, you know, sure. we were, I think Dark Sun was more extreme than Conan was, even. Yeah. But it was kind of like a lot of the different view of what fantasy could be mm-hmm. was we took from that, you know. And, you know, there was a lot of blood and sand fantasy that I kind of read. Uh-huh. Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, I mean, John Carter of Mars was probably more of a fan, an influence on it than most people realize. Mm-hmm. What was something that, something that, like, in your mind for this world, you know, you've said that, you know, it's this, this world is really close to your heart. So kind of from your perception of the community or from what's been sort of put out for Dark Sun that, you, you know, that you've, that you're aware of, what, what is something that maybe people don't notice about Athos that you wish was sort of a, a bigger part of, of the story or a bigger part of, of the community? Well, I think that people are aware of the environmental themes in, in mm-hmm. it, in the story. Yeah. But I don't think that they comment on them or, or realize how they drove the story mm-hmm. and how they drove the design of the game. Um, I, don't, I don't think most people understand that that at the heart this is a game about global warming <laughs> you know yeah it, it, it really is i mean that that was yeah. very much on on our minds it, you know it was during that time it was just people were just beginning to understand what global warming was and what kind of an impact it was kind mm-hmm. of have. and that was one of the things we talked about during that conceptualizing year mm-hmm. is how do we kind of present that in a in a game world and in a a fictional, you know, world building the world. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, it was very, you know, the whole idea of defiler magic was directly tied to the idea of, all right, you have this beautiful, wonderful thing called industrialization, but at the same time you, you do that, you're tearing the world apart to make what you want to make it, you know, to make all of these miracles happen. Mm-hmm. And so what happens when you've already, when you've taken the, taken too much out of the world, what happens then? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really at the core of Dark Sun. Yeah, I, I it's agree. It's very much an environmental role-playing game. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that's something I I definitely try to play up. So going back to kind of the books, you know, in those five books, you you really change the world dramatically. Dramatically, several of the Sorcerer Kings die. What do you think about that? Kind of in retrospect. Like, if you could do it now, would you do the same thing, or would you would you handle it differently? Well, boy, that's a good question. <laughs> um, you know, at the time that I was writing those, a lot of the fantasy worlds, a lot of the fantasy books were books that kind of went out and changed the world. You know, it was, it was the whole genre at the time was about saving the world. You know, uh-huh. the hero who saves the world. And so I was operating in that tradition, but trying to twist it. Mm-hmm. Because of course that's what we did. Everything we did with Jarkson, you know, all the themes that that are there from standard fantasy, they're all there. It's just that they're all twisted slightly. Sure. And and so I was kind of trying to do that. You know, we have this 
this character Boris, who is trying, who in the past tried to save the world, tried to you know return it to the Blue Age, and what he created succeeded in creating was you know worse than what would have happened if he hadn't tr- bothered at all. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of lost track of the question again. Uh, I was just asking, like the you know if you know, you changed the world quite a bit. Like if you, in retrospect, would you kind of, can, do you think you still would have done the same thing? You know, I think I should just dodge that question because, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Sure. <laughs> because Dark Sun was my fourth through eighth, ninth book. Uh-huh. And I've written like, what, almost 30 books since then. Uh-huh. And I've learned an awful lot. Uh-huh. And, um, I think that somewhere after at the point where I had written about 20, I went back and kind of started reading them again and was looking at them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that I re- noticed when I read them was there were a lot of things I noticed. It was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I phrased it this way or, <laughs> you know, that, you know, my language is so clunky in this spot, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a few things like that. But the other thing I noticed was that just how wild and free I was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Verdant Passage I wrote in six weeks. I, you know, we wow. we literally finished the Dark Sun box set, turned it over to editing, and then I had to get the the novels out because we weren't sure while we were doing the box set, we weren't sure that I was going to do it. But this was the first book I didn't have to audition for. You know, it was like <laughs> Mary. It was like I, I looked at Mary one day and I said, "Are you going to make me audition to do this?" And she said, "No, but are you going to have time? I mean, how are you going to get it written in time?" Uh-huh. And I said, "Well, I'll find a way. You know, I'll do it." So we just kind of said, okay, we'll do that. And, you know, I mean, we had the general outline for the books, but I just sat down, I had six weeks to write it, and there was no time to outline it, get it approved or anything. So we turned the, the Dark Sun book over one day, and then I went home. You know, I just left my um, office at, at TSR completely with, you know, my calendar and, and my coffee cup, my teacup and everything just still on the desk. Went home and started writing and didn't go into work for six weeks while I was writing the novel and um, you know I was just like day and night and, and just writing kind of based on memory of everything that we had been discussing for the year before mm-hmm. and the kind of vague outlines we'd done it but there was also a lot of stuff that just came to me spontaneously and that I just gotcha. you know made up on the spot and let it spill out like Sacha and Wyan they weren't okay. part of the original conception they were just like something that occurred to me as I was writing the book Huh, and cool. wouldn't it be cool to have a couple of heads floating around? Yeah, that's awesome. And, yeah, and then you know, and then later on, I developed backstory for him and and so forth. So so it sounds like you guys wrote the wrote the box set, and then you wrote the novels, and so that does explain why there's you know stuff that sort of is not in you know is not in the box set that you know would think that you would think would be would have been would have been included um, that yeah. was sort of included in the revised box set uh, or yeah or exactly. products. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that I just threw in on the spur of the moment that just as I was writing along and I said, wouldn't this be neat? You know, I mean, the, all of the stuff about the pristine tower and, you know, everything, uh-huh. uh, the mutant, you know, how the, the, it mutated the races and, and, yeah. and you, know, you know, like Magnus was an elf. Uh-huh. All of that stuff just kind of spontaneously occurred to me as I was writing the story. Nice, nice. Um, you know, and, and because I was one of the um, original designers, I, you know, felt comfortable doing that. I knew mm-hmm. that nobody was going to tell me, no, you can't do it. <laughs> because I would just say, yes, I can. <laughs> um, 
So, so you said you kind of had a, an outline. What was your process then? Did you just sort of write straight through, or do you kind of jump around to different parts of the book? Uh, you know, no, I I consistently start at the beginning and then write to the end. Okay, interesting. So you know what you know, uh, Bob Salvatore uh, is writing more uh, more Drizzt novels uh, with Harper's Publishing uh, since Wizards of the Coast kind of have shuttered their book department for now. Uh, if Wizards decides to put out and uh, you know put out Dark Sun, would you would you be willing to write more novels? Yeah, you know, I, I would, I, I loved writing Dark Sun, and you know, it's one of the things I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would definitely be open to doing that. Thanks for listening. Please join us next month for the second half of our interview with Troy Denning. In the meantime, you can reach Robert at at Radio76 on Twitter, or at his Patreon at Patreon.com/RobertAducci. You can reach me at VisionaryComs on Twitter, or you can try to find me on Facebook, which is probably more likely. Bone, Stone, and Obsidian is hosted by the Misdirected Mark Network, the media arm of Encoded Designs.